This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. Now on to something very, very different. Juliet Zuka is one of those rare and exciting writing talents. She's gritty, hugely poetic and deeply provocative. Her first novel, When the Emperor Was Divine, is about the internment of a Japanese-American family during World War II and I have to say is one incredibly interesting read. Her second novel, The Buddha in the Attic, takes a very, very different tone. It's about a group of young Japanese picture brides who sailed to America in the early 1900s to become the wives of men they had never met and knew only by their photographs. Today, Julie lives in New York City, where she writes every afternoon in her neighbourhood cafe. I call up Julie and asked her what inspired her to write The Buddha in the Attic. Well, actually, I got the idea when I was on book tour for my first book, and I was touring in California, and every time I gave a reading, there were a lot of Japanese-Americans in the audience, and they'd come up to me afterwards, and they would just start telling me stories about their grandmother or their great-aunt who'd come over as a picture bride. And I just heard so many different variations of this story, and I thought, you know, it's for us, it's actually a very common story. I mean, many of our grandmothers came over as picture brides, but for whatever reason, their stories have not been told. Those women themselves were very quiet for a number of reasons. Most of them never really learned English. They also deferred to their husbands as well as to the white American culture at large. And yet, you know, you think of Japanese women as being very kind of demure, submissive, feminine, but these were really tough pioneer women. And I just feel like since it is such a part of our history and it's a story that, I mean, a lot has been written about World War II and the internment camps and the Japanese Americans, but not so much about the earlier generations. And I feel like this is really where our story started was with these women. And I did want to give them a voice because they were so silent during their own lives. So this is actually the very beginning of the book on the first paragraph. Um, so you have a, a group of young picture brides, 100 plus young girls on a boat coming from Japan to America uh, in the early 1900s. Come, Japanese. On the boat, we were mostly virgins. We had long black hair and flat white feet, and we were not very tall. Some of us had eaten nothing but rice gruel as young girls and had slightly bowed legs, and some of us were only 14 years old and were still young girls ourselves. Some of us came from the city and wore stylish city clothes, that many more of us came from the country, and on the boat we wore the same old kimonos we'd been wearing for years, faded hand-me-downs from our sisters that had been patched and re-dyed many times. Some of us came from the mountains and had never before seen the sea, except for in pictures, and some of us were the daughters of fishermen who had been around the sea all our lives. Perhaps we had lost a brother or father to the sea or a fiancé. Or perhaps someone we loved had jumped into the water one unhappy morning and simply swum away. And now it was time for us two to move on. That's an extraordinary opening paragraph. And it's a fascinating story of displacement, of survival. It must have been very difficult to write, you know, because you're presenting a very harrowing story, but also it touches on your own family history. Actually, I loved writing this book. I think maybe I'm drawn to dark, difficult stories. And my own family story is so, I mean, it's 
star. It's typical in a way of many Japanese Americans. I mean, my grandfather was arrested by the FBI on December 8, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed and sent away to a series of camps run by the Department of Justice for Dangerous Enemy Aliens. And then my mother, who was 10, her younger brother and my grandmother were sent away from their house in Berkeley several months later to an internment camp in Utah where they spent the next three years of the war. So, you know, that story I know a lot about just having grown up in my family around my relatives. I mean, it's very common for anyone in the West Coast. I mean, often the first thing Japanese Americans meet of a certain age, um, what they say to each other when they meet is, you know, after hello, how, how are you, is which camp were you in? But I was fascinated by these women's stories. To me, as an American, it just seems so utterly alien to me. I mean, culturally, they were so different. They were, you know, schooled not to develop strong characters, to do what you were told. And yet they just, they thrust themselves into this into this very foreign and new culture. And they had no idea of how difficult life would be for them, I think, once they reached the American shores. And yet they, they toughed it out. They stuck it out. Most of these marriages were not happy. But I... I actually, I loved writing this story. I, I just felt like I was living with these voices in my head for years. There was something almost joyous about using what I call the we voice, the first person plural voice. It almost came to me like a song. It was very, I was hearing these rhythms in my head of the sentences. It just, I, I don't know, I felt like I was just immersed in this world. So even though it was kind of harrowing material, I felt very alive during the time that I was writing it. So, Julie, in The Buddha in the Attic, you have this extraordinary section on how the situations these wonderful Japanese women faced when they went into labour. And it's really now, I have to say, it's, it's powerful stuff, but it's really rough stuff too. Could I get you to read a passage? Would that be okay? Oh, that would be fine. Yeah, I'll read from the, from the very first section of Babies. Babies. We gave birth under oak trees in summer in 113-degree heat. We gave birth beside wood stoves in one-room shacks on the coldest nights of the year. We gave birth on windy islands in the Delta six months after we arrived, and the babies were tiny and translucent, and after three days, they died. We gave birth nine months after we arrived to perfect babies with full heads of black hair. We gave birth in dusty vineyard camps in Elk Grove and Florin. We gave birth on remote farms in the Imperial Valley with the help of only our husbands who had learned from the housewife's companion what to do. First, you bring the pan water to a boil. We gave birth in Rialto by the light of a kerosene lantern on top of an old silk quilt we had brought over with us in our trunk from Japan. It still had my mother's smell. We gave birth like Makio in a barn out in Maxwell while lying on a thick bed of straw. I wanted to be near the animals. We gave birth alone in an apple orchard in Sebastopol after searching for firewood one unusually warm autumn morning high up in the hills. I cut her navel string with my knife and carried her home in my arms. We gave birth in a tent in Livingston with the help of a Japanese midwife who had traveled 20 miles on horseback to see us from the next town. We gave birth in towns where no doctor would see us, and we washed out the afterbirth ourselves. I watched my mother do it many times. It's hard to actually put any sane word on that that actually describes how ghastly the situation was for some of these women but also how unbelievably pragmatic, how strong they were. I mean, we're, 
we're very sensible folk. And, I mean, most of these, again, they were girls, teenagers. I mean, many of them, um, in the end, had broods, 9, 10, 11 children. They lost often many of their babies, but, you know, they needed many hands to help out in the field. Um, but most of them also lived in very, very remote farm areas, so they were utterly alone. So it was really up to them. Um, and often doctors wouldn't, you know, take on Japanese patients. And often they were too poor anyway to pay a doctor. So, But there were Japanese midwives in the community, if you were lucky. But it was, um, it was very, very difficult. And Julie, I'm wondering, anyone who works at migrant communities in Ireland and Europe or in America, Obviously, you know, birthing situations have changed through the years, but the isolation, the ostracization, the vulnerabilities and the exploitation facing migrants all over the world is still happening today. Yeah, I mean, now, I mean, Mexican labor is in California. I mean, it's always, you know, some group that's needed as a cheap source of labor that's brought in and then really used and exploited. But yes. Now, Julie, the story ends very uh, movingly when hundreds of these Japanese families were relocated to what they termed internment camps. And this all happened, I think, in about the spring of 1942 to the end of the war. And I know your own mother was in an internment camp. Can you talk to me a little bit about this and what was it like for those who had to go? Yes, I mean, my mother actually and her entire family, her brother and her her parents and all all my relatives on the West Coast uh, who were alive at that time were sent to these camps. Their entire life was turned upside down. I mean, her father went to work the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed. He was a businessman in San Francisco. They lived in Berkeley. He went to work and he, he never came home. So for a few days, my grandmother had no idea where he was. And it turns out he'd been arrested by the FBI. And then things only got worse after that. You know, several months later, my mother, who was 10, her family was um, rounded up along with tens of thousands of other Japanese Americans living on the West Coast. And they were sent first to, uh, actually, it was a temporary assembly center. It was at a horse race track south of San Francisco. So many of the prisoners were housed in horse stalls and they were housed there for the summer of 1942. And at the end of the summer, my mother, her mother and my uncle uh, went to an, an internment camp in Topaz, Utah. And it was, I mean, the conditions were horrific. They were, nobody starved, nobody was beaten, um, but the bear, they were very flimsy. They were made of tar paper. It was very, very hot in the summer, very cold in the winter. There was really very, very little privacy. Uh, they had no idea how long they would be there for, why they had been sent away. Um, but, you know, many people lost their businesses, their homes, their property. And, Schools and the camps were not very good. Uh, I remember my mother telling me about when she came back from camp to Berkeley, and she was a freshman at Berkeley High, and she was just terrified that she wouldn't be able to, to keep up. Their entire lives were just turned upside down, really overnight. And you write that so beautifully because we get a very desolate, lonely, bleak picture of the neighborhoods and of the J-towns or the Japanese towns that these families lived in. And when I was reading it, I almost felt it was like after a nuclear attack or something. Mm. It was very palpable. Like obviously you had the, you know, the changes of the store names and the streets, but there was this huge sense of loneliness and tragedy and this kind of eeriness. I imagine that must have been very emotional for you to write. Yeah, well, actually, I got the idea, again, for the ending of the book when I was on book tour. You know, I would often speak to older white folks who were alive during that time, and, and they would say to me, you know, I had no idea about 
what happened, you know, to the Japanese during the war. And I would think, really? You know, how could you not have noticed that your neighbors were suddenly sent away? But often the Japanese were living over there in their own segregated neighborhood. So it was possible. You might not know people who live over there, and they could disappear um, without your really noticing. Although there were signs on all the telephone poles, you know, um, ordering the Japanese to leave. Um, But I remember one woman... She was, I think, in kindergarten or the first grade uh, when the war broke out, a white woman. And she said that she sat next to a Japanese girl, and one day that girl was there, and the next day she was gone. And she always wondered what had happened to her. And so I was curious also in exploring the point of view, you know, of a typical white town the moment after their Japanese neighbors had been sent away. And I remember my own mother telling me, too, when she came back from camp to Berkeley that, Nobody asked her where she had been. And she, you know, she was back in school with children she'd been in school with since she was, you know, five. But they just said, you know, oh, hi, Alice, as if she'd never been away at all. So um, there was a loneliness to coming back, too, because I think their disappearance often uh, went uh, unacknowledged. Well, if no one ever marries me and I don't see why they should Nurses, I'm not pretty Okay, that's it from Talking Books from me this morning. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Next week, we will be talking to Kitty Holland on her new book, Savita, The Tragedy That Shook a Nation. Well, all that's left for me to do is to thank Valerie Jordan, who helped out in research, and the very lovely Alan Regan on sound. We've been talking books. Why don't you get out of your bed, enjoy a hot cup of tea, sit back, relax, and remind yourself, today is a new day. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.